Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, friends. I'm out here on 5th Street downtown in front of uh, Greater, which, by the way, um, when that place opens, is a fantastic grilled cheese sandwich. And I want to introduce you to an uh, unbelievable father-son uh, marathon and triathlon team. You maybe have heard of them before. It's Rick and Dick Hoyt. Dick and his son Rick have been running races together for many, many years, and I want to show you a brief video to introduce their story to you if you haven't yet heard it. In a very challenging circumstance, when Rick's parents were faced with the situation where it looked like a flourishing life for Rick was a long shot, they chose to hope. They hoped that indeed Rick would enjoy a flourishing life despite all the challenges that certainly lay ahead for him. And you know, hope is a really powerful thing. In fact, there's a, a thing called the science of hope, which explores the ways in which hope actually changes the chemistry in our brain. When we hope, it turns out that uh, our brain releases endorphins, uh, which is a wonderful thing for our physiological system. It's the same sort of thing that happens when you exercise and uh, your body releases endorphins, and uh, it's a very positive experience physiologically. It turns out that the Hoyts were getting kind of a double dose of endorphins when they both hoped for a flourishing life for their son, Rick, and also engaged in some intense exercise. Today, as we look at Jeremiah chapter 29, we're gonna explore a story of hope, cultivating hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's primarily what Jeremiah 29 is about and what I hope that this message is about for you. So, as we dive into this context in Jeremiah 29, let's hope together, even in the midst of challenging and difficult circumstances. So in Jeremiah 29, the prophet is writing to the Israelites in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Here's a little bit uh, about the context there. So to begin with, uh, Jeremiah was writing to the Israelites when they were exiles in the city of Babylon. What had happened was in the year 586 BC, the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem and had tore down the city walls, tore down the temple that sat at the center of Jerusalem's religious and cultural life, uh, and then ultimately carted off most of Jerusalem's leading citizens. They carted them off um, from Jerusalem over to Babylon and made exiles out of them. It turns out this is a pretty, uh, was a pretty common a technique of intimidation and enculturation in the ancient world. If you could lead out the uh, kind of the leading citizens of a city and then indoctrinate them or enculturate them in a new culture, 
uh, then you could wipe out any hope that they may have had that was based in their own culture or their own heritage or even their own religion. So these were difficult circumstances to say the least. Circumstances into which Jeremiah is writing and the Lord is speaking. And the Lord speaks through Jeremiah to the Israelites and gives instructions on how to live faithfully in the midst of those difficult situations. And the Lord says essentially three things. He says, pursue a flourishing life, pursue a flourishing city, and pursue a flourishing hope. And those are the three topics that we're going to explore together. What does it look like to pursue a flourishing life in the midst of difficult circumstances? What does it look like to pursue a flourishing city in the midst of difficult circumstances? And then finally, what does it look like to pursue a flourishing hope? So first of all, pursuing a flourishing life. Listen again to verses 5 and 6. The Lord says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Then they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Build gardens. Build houses. Uh, plant gardens, rather. Build houses and develop relationships. That's how the Lord um, instructs his people to cultivate a flourishing life in the midst of difficult circumstances. And you know, if that sounds ordinary to you, I think you're tracking with the Lord. This is super ordinary stuff. Or perhaps all of life is super extraordinary. It's hard to tell what the difference is. But here is what the Lord says. Time out here, we gotta cross a dangerous intersection. He says, look, seek faithfulness in the midst of the ordinary. You know, so much of life, let's face it, is ordinary. Whether it's doing the laundry, shopping for groceries, washing the dishes, it's kind of ordinary stuff. And the Lord says, seek faithfulness in the midst of all of that ordinary stuff. And then he also says, essentially, grow roots, develop relationships, plant yourself in the place in which you live. I mean, he literally says, plant gardens, grow roots. You know, when Krista and I were living in Buckley, Washington, uh, we were there for about four and a half years. And we didn't know how long we were going to be there. We had no idea. But we literally planted gardens. And the reason we did that, in addition to, well, it was just fun, was we wanted to intentionally plant roots. We wanted to be where God had called us to be and to be there intentionally. We also developed significant relationships, deep friendships that continue today. I invite you to think about right now, who are some people that you can develop relationships with, that you can grow roots with? 
This is part of what it means to uh, seek faithfulness in the midst of a flourishing life, in the midst of difficult circumstances, to develop meaningful relationships. You know, the context that the Israelites were in was uh, they were exiles in a foreign land. That's pretty bad, pretty difficult circumstances. And in those challenging circumstances, the Lord instructs them, pursue a flourishing life right exactly where you are. Don't wait until things get better or easier or more smooth, but develop roots, develop relationships, maybe literally plant a garden. That's what it looks like to seek a flourishing life in the midst of difficult circumstances. If your son is born with cerebral palsy, what does it look like for you to pursue a flourishing life for your son and for yourself in the midst of that challenging circumstance? So, pursue a flourishing life. Secondly, pursue a flourishing city. Listen again to verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek this city's good. Seek what is best for it, which kind of raises the question, right? What is good for the city? I mean, I think of parks and recreation. I think of wastewater treatment. I think of police and safety officers. I think of transportation planning and business zoning. Pursue the best in all of these areas for the sake of the city. All this stuff matters, which by the way, if you don't hear anything else, I hope what you hear in this is that your work matters. You know, if you're a part of developing wastewater treatment systems and plans, that work matters. If you're a part of designing and building bridges and transportation plans, your work matters. If you're an accountant for this city and you are part of a system that helps plan communities, your work matters. I hope that at least you hear that this morning. So seek the good of the city. Now, the problem is we don't always agree on what is good for the city, right? I mean, that's the challenge, which is why it's so important that we pray for the city, right? The Lord says, seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. We got to pray for the city in part because we don't necessarily agree on what is actually good for the city. And I tell you what, here's how I invite you to pray for the city. Okay, where were we? Sorry, it uh, gets a little crazy out here recording sermons on the go. Um, ah, yes. Here's how I encourage you to pray for the city. Oh, gracious and living God, help me to pursue what is best for my neighborhood, for my city, for my neighbors, above my own personal gain. You see, 
It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of really being interested in and pursuing our own personal gain. But this is not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way of the gospel, and it's not the way of Jeremiah 29. We're invited to pursue the good of this city. And so I invite you to pray with me that we would together seek what is actually best for the city above and before what might be for our own personal gain. And you know, the reality is when we, um, when we pray for our neighbors, when we pray for our city, it is really difficult to um, remain uninterested in our neighbor's flourishing or our city's flourishing. So I invite you right now to think of somebody, a neighbor, a business owner, somebody that you can begin to pray for, or maybe a neighborhood or a whole business district or a school. How can you begin to pray for these people or these companies or systems as a way to seek the flourishing of the city? Because pursuing the flourishing of your city is one of the ways the Lord instructs us to be faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. So first of all, pursue a flourishing life right now. Secondly, pursue a flourishing city right now. And then third, pursue a flourishing hope. Listen again to verses 11, 12, and 13. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with hope. Then, when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me, if you seek me with all of your heart. You know, the Lord has plans for your flourishing. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Do you believe that indeed you are God's handiwork and that he has prepared good works for you beforehand, works that are to be your way of life? That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us. Do you believe that you are God's handiwork and that he has prepared beforehand good works for you to do? A life of flourishing, a future of flourishing. God says through Jeremiah the prophet that we are to pursue a flourishing hope. You know, one of the ways that we pursue a flourishing hope is by raising our horizon line. The horizon line is um, sometimes what we think of when we imagine watching the sunset over the Pacific Ocean looking west and, and the horizon line is the line between uh, the line where the ocean bleeds into the sky. And that's right, that's the horizon line. Technically speaking, your horizon line is at your eye level. So no matter where you are, your horizon line is really your point of view. It is the level of your eyes. So you can imagine that sunset uh, over the Pacific Ocean. If you were to go up to the 10th story of the Pasea Hotel, which I'm approaching here in just a minute. If you were to head up to the 10th floor of the Paseo Hotel, 
you would have a different perspective of that same sunset because your horizon line would be over 100 feet higher than it was when you were standing on the beach. Now, watching the sunset from the 10th floor actually isn't a whole lot different of a perspective than it is from ground level, but imagine if you were to look east from the Pasea Hotel on the 10th floor and you were to look over the city of Huntington Beach, your horizon line 100 feet higher than if you were just sitting on a bench at the street level, your horizon line would give you a whole different perspective. You would be able to see the whole context of the city of Huntington Beach. You'd be able to see the 405. You'd be able to see Santa Ana. You'd be able to see Mount Baldy. All of this would be in your point of view because you would have a higher horizon line. You would have better perspective. And one of the ways that we, uh, that we cultivate a flourishing hope is by raising our horizon line. So how do we do that? How do we raise the horizon line of our hopes? Well, I think the primary way that we do this and a really straightforward way that we do this is by reading our Bibles. This is one of the reasons that we've invited you to join us in reading through the whole Bible in 2020. Because when we read this grand narrative that God tells us through his scriptures, when we read that story, we gain a better perspective on reality. It's like we have gone up to the 10th floor of the Pasea Hotel and now we can see how things really are. We're less likely to be overwhelmed by the circumstances that directly surround us because we can see the bigger story. So pursuing a flourishing hope in part is done by reading this grand story, this grand narrative that God tells us in his scriptures. For surely I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare and not for your harm. Plans to give you a future with hope. What that future looks like is unpacked for us in the context of the scriptures. And so I invite you, if you haven't yet begun to read with us in our Year in the Bible campaign, to join us. And uh, you don't have to start at the beginning and try to catch up on five and a half months of reading. In fact, I would recommend you don't try to do that. But just start reading. Read this most magnificent story to gain perspective on what's going on to have a clearer view of reality. That's how we can cultivate and pursue a flourishing hope. Listen to verse 14 again in Jeremiah 29. It ends with these words. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is what the Lord says to the Israelites who had been in Babylon for many years as exiles. He says, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And after 70 years of exile in the city of Babylon, many of the Israelites did return home to Jerusalem. And the city's walls in Jerusalem were rebuilt. 
and the temple that had been destroyed that sat at the center of the city, it was rebuilt. But the reality is that many of those Israelites who were in, uh, in exile did not return. And though the temple was rebuilt, that second temple was really only a shadow of the amazing glory of the first temple that Solomon built. And this reality kind of fomented, fomented a kind of disappointment among the Israelites. They knew that though they had returned from exile, they had not entirely returned from exile. Things were not normal. They were not the way that they used to be. The temple was not like it used to be. Not all of the Israelites were gathered together in Jerusalem. And even in the first century context of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, the Israelites still felt a sense of being in exile because though they were in their home city, it didn't really feel like home with the Roman occupation. And that's why many Jews in the first century began to look to the promises of a new covenant for the sake of their hope. A new covenant. And the prophet Jeremiah talks about this new covenant in chapter 31. So the Jews began to place less hope on their immediate circumstances because they knew that their return to exile wasn't really, return from exile, wasn't really going the way that they had hoped and planned. So they began to look to the future when God would establish a new covenant with them. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says to us in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. This is the new covenant details as given by the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to these words. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The new covenant that Jeremiah talks about here is one in which the God, that one in which God will put his law in our hearts. We will know God personally and all of our iniquity will be forgiven once and for all. Those are the three promises of this new covenant. These promises were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God's own son. And we can invite Jesus to make his home in our hearts. And when we invite him to do that, he does and he will. And not only does God put his law in our hearts, but he himself comes to live in our hearts. 
And because he himself comes to live in our hearts when we invite him to do so, we have the privilege of knowing him personally, of having a personal relationship with the living God of the cosmos through Jesus Christ who comes to live in our hearts. They will know me, all of them, from the least to the greatest. So it doesn't matter how big or small you are, how rich or poor you are, It doesn't matter how black or white you are. None of this matters. What matters is that you invite Jesus to make his home in your heart. And he will. That's the promise of the new covenant. And finally, Jesus fulfills the promise of forgiveness when he offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Because in this new covenant... Jesus' death on the cross paid our debt, the debt that we owed. It erased the ledger of of sin that we owed to God. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The prophet Jeremiah says, well, the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, and all of this was fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate hope of our ultimate flourishing. That when we invite Jesus to make his home in our heart, his law, no, his very self, comes to set up his dwelling place in our hearts so that we can know him personally. How good is that? And not only know him, But all our sin, all our iniquity, once and for all, has been wiped out. Our slate has been wiped clean. You know, the hope that you and I are invited to cultivate is the hope of Jesus Christ. The one in whom we've been given access and a relationship to God the Father the one who wiped out all of our sin when he gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And this is the kind of ultimate hope that can fuel our pursuit of a flourishing life now in the midst of challenging circumstances. This is the kind of ultimate hope that can, per, that can fuel a pursuit of a flourishing city now in the context in which we live. You know, as Dick Hoyt's hope for a flourishing life for his son Rick fueled his pursuit of marathon after marathon and triathlon after triathlon, may the hope that you have in Jesus Christ fuel your pursuit of a meaningful and flourishing life. And may it fuel your pursuit of a flourishing neighborhood and a flourishing city for the sake of Jesus' name and in Jesus' name. May it be so today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Friends, be blessed today. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpchb.org.